Hi everyone and welcome to the News Agent Podcast. I'm Susie Lysett, Content Manager at Goodlord, and today's episode is a recording of our webinar with David Smith, partner at JMW Solicitors, and Goodlord's Director of Insurance, Ollie Sherlock. They give a lettings legislation update covering EPCs, short-term lets, material information, and more, as well as, of course, some comments around the renters' reform bill. So without any further ado, we'll crack on with the podcast. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us this morning um, on a very sunny day. How nice it is to have summer back. Um, welcome to today's instalment of the Good Lord webinar series. Uh, today, I'm joined by David Smith, a partner at JMW Solicitors, um, hopefully somebody that you know quite well. Um, David, good morning. How are you? Morning. I, I, I'm I'm well, thank you. I'm, I'm enjoying the change from all the rain recently. I can actually see sunshine. I can actually see out my windows. It looks like it might even be a nice day. It's actually extremely warm as well. Um, it was like walk, walking out of a plane this morning out of the house uh, when I took the kids to school. Almost in nursery. Like it's I, I know, like it's meant to be this way. Um, but thank you so much for taking a break from the sunshine and joining us for the next uh, the next hour to take us through um, a lettings legislation uh, legislation update. Um, we're going to be talking today EPCs, consumer protection, material information, and much more. Um, and I dare say, David, um, the Renters Reform Bill will make some appearance. We're going to try and move away uh, from that you, as you much promise. as we can. Yes. <laughs> you promised that we none of no rent reform. Well, unfortunately, David, we are dictated by our by our viewers today, um, of which we've got hundreds joining. So thank you so much for joining us. And whilst we are moving away uh, or trying to move away somewhat from the rent reform bill, we do accept that some of the points we'll talk about actually layer in and are pertinent to the reform bill too. So um, whilst um, whilst David is absolutely sick of talking about it, and frankly, um, <laughs> so am I, um, it's absolutely necessary given how, you know, uh, the gravity of that change for our market and our industry. So we welcome basically any questions. In terms of um, um, good Lord, these sessions aren't really about our business, but you might be joining not knowing who Good Lord are. Um, and Good Lord are a pre-tenancy um, uh, platform. We help expedite um, the tenancy ten- ten- process, make it more simple, um, ensure your compliance, and really allow you to focus on all the other areas of your business that help generate uh, maybe better quality of service your landlords and tenants, um, and indeed generate hopefully more revenue. And we have product lines that help support that, ranging from rent protection insurance, for example, all the way through rent collection, lettings account, tenants insurance all bills included um, if you want to know more about good lord you can visit our website at www.goodlord.co where you can also request a demo and we can take you through uh, no obligation whatsoever take you through exactly what good lord does that's good lord back in its box again these sessions aren't really about good lord um, we're about helping support and consult with you as lessons professionals and with that in mind we've already broken the cardinal rule we're three slides in david we're talking about the renters reform bill uh, these are our own slides we've, we've done it to ourselves um but it's worth noting that we also have a renters reform bill course um hopefully you've been following the work we've been doing over over the last year or so um and we've been putting a lot of content together from from different names and sources across the industry um, we've compiled all of this into a course that you can access um, this can be used to ensure that you're up to date with all the understandings of what the bill is, is, is promoting to do obviously that's subject to change uh, and, and a load of other resources that are available to you for you and your staff um, if you want to take advantage of that then please do let us know um, and there'll be more information that follows to your inbox um, regarding that shortly really worth so, there's so much misinformation about the bill at the moment as well 
there is and, and and again we're doing this to ourselves but we're talking about it for instead but that, that's indeed the problem and i think also the problem is that people are taking what's been written as cast iron guarantee that's what we're moving forwards and you know as we discussed yesterday david there's a second reading to come and hold on to your seats because there could be substantial change from that second reading i think but the more salient point is that, that there's the there's a possibility of michael gove no longer being secretary of state that's the current rumor around westminster and uh is it really? A new Secretary of State means uh, means a new broom and new ideas, and and you just never know for sure what that means. Well, if we were to lose the lose the Govmeister General, um, things would certainly shake up, uh, and be interesting to see how much legs most of this has ahead of uh, obviously an election, which is uh, is not that far away. Um, so all all to play for, by the sounds of it, uh, from what David's saying there, um, and and actually from a process perspective, of course, it is all to play for. Uh, it's got to go through the House first, and the House of Lords get royal assent, um, and there's clearly plenty of challenge and a number of topics around the bill. So um, yeah, I think it's great to get up to date factual information cut out any of the noise but also again i would urge everyone to keep following um the the news coming out of uh, of parliament because i think there is going to be substantial change to maybe what you've learned to be true moving forwards but to david's point there could be even further change at the top of the tree um which would would would, would put us all going what the hell's happening i don't know we all um, just go, and go home for a while yeah, indeed. Go, go and enjoy the sunshine. Um, OK, well, let's get into today's topic. Um, so today we're going to be covering um, the increasing uh, min- uh, minimum uh, energy efficiency requirements. Goodness me, that's a mouthful. Um, changes to material information, um, updates to shortlets, um, an uh, upcoming review of tenant consumer rights um, and expected guidance around damp and mould. Um, you, you can ask any questions around these points persons or uh, nonetheless um, or you can actually ask us anything else around uh, legislation that is maybe troubling you uh, and we'll try our very best uh, to answer Letting's those questions please indeed just lettings yeah uh, <laughs> give, me, give, me, give me a chance Although it would be good to stretch David's skill set here and see how, how far many random is. things does David know about I get, I've, got, <laughs> I've got I've got fellow colleagues who do things like that <laughs> uh, well let's get into it and again once again David thank you for joining us so let, let's talk about um, EPCs first um so um david do you want to give us an update as to where we are because at one stage this timeline was looking extremely certain everybody was clear what was happening or they thought they were um i'm not quite sure we're in that world are we no i mean it's 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 all been a bit of a, a messy position so as i'm sure everyone is aware there is there is a position that you're not allowed to rent out a property uh, either as a new let or a continuing let with an epc rating of an f or a g you must have e or better if you have an F or G rating, you must be, and you want to let it, you must either demonstrate that it's impossible to do the work, that the tenant won't let you do the work, or, or a superior landlord won't let you do the work, or that um, the work can't be done within within the financial threshold. And you must register that with the appropriate uh, website run by the government. Um, I do tend to find that a lot of people do not register with the website. And if you're not registered, you are, in fact, committing an offence. So you should, in fact, register. Um, as is well known, and most people, I'm sure, are fully aware, uh, a lot of carbon is actually produced out of your home, which is not terribly surprising. You spend a great deal of time there. Um, most people spend most of the winter heating their homes with gas, which produces carbon. So carbon production in in, in domestic premises is quite substantial. Uh, the government obviously needs to reduce our carbon emissions one way or another because because we've agreed to internationally and the planet probably requires it. I appreciate some of you may disagree, but this is probably not the time to get into a discussion <laughs> about whether there's such a thing as global warming. Let's let's just agree that it's a good thing to reduce unnecessary unnecessary pollution. Um, so um, 
the general drive has been towards improving that. So the government had a consultation uh, where they said that they were aiming at a C. So anything with a D, E, F or G rating would not be something that you could rent. And then they proposed a a phased timeline of 2025 for new lets and 2028 for existing lets. And then everything went a little bit quiet. So lots of people responded to the consultation. The normal position on a consultation is that people respond and then the government sort of produces a summary of all their responses and their response to the responses and what they propose to do. And none of that has happened. Um, And everyone has, for some reason, which I don't think was actually, I don't know why everyone did this. I mean, and, and partly I think press and people jumped on this a bit. A lot of people were were sort of treated the consultation as this is the government's plan to do it by 2025. And the closer we got to 25, the more people got a bit bit panicky about it. But actually, that was never the government's plan. I actually had a meeting um, with Bayes not so long ago where we started out by saying, what's going on here? And Bayes' response was, there is no government position until we respond to the consultation. And we haven't responded to the consultation. We may do so by the end of this year, but we probably won't. Um, And therefore, until we've replied, there's no reply. Um, and we've also got to now look at comments by Michael Gove. He's come up again already, twice, twice, twice in one, one webinar. He must be famous. We must have heard of him. So recent comments by Michael Gove, and of course, um, this has been driven somewhat by the result of the by-election in Uxbridge, where rightly or wrongly, the Conservative Party has received the message that um, environmental stuff may not in fact be the thing that's going to win them seats. And, and essentially what they're trying to do is is put a line between themselves and the Labour Party on the basis that the Labour Party will cost you money with what David Cameron cheerfully used to refer to as green crap. Um, so the position now is that is that it was always going to be impossible to get to see by 2025. The government's left it too long. You know, if you if you turn around today and say everyone's got to make a C by 2025, it's just never gonna, it's just not gonna happen. It's an impossibility. So that's already gone. Realistically, now there is going to be nothing before the next general election. So I, I'd be incredibly surprised if the government made any solid announcement on this on this whole issue um prior to effectively the end of 24, which is probably around about when a putative election is going to yeah. be. I mean, they could they could draw it out into twenty five, but I think most people think they'll go for somewhere around October twenty four, all things being equal. Um, and um, I, I'd be very surprised at this stage if there was to be any significant announcement uh, in respect of of, of um, EPCC ratings. Now, of course, that has knock on effects. Um, so one of the great questions here is what support is available? The answer is not a hell of a lot, actually. And of course, the government's not very inclined to put more support behind something that they're not really announcing and they're not wanting to put too much money behind. And also the government's a bit short of money. So support currently is is within the existing eco schemes, which are run um, essentially by individual um uh, uh, energy provider companies, which they're required to under what's called Eco2. Um, those schemes are hugely variable in extent and availability. Some of them are available to private sector landlords. Some of them are not. Uh, some of them are only available to social landlords, which seems a bit bizarre. So there is a real shortage of available support at this stage. 
in terms of what to do, I think the answer is to do what you would do anyway, which is to maintain your properties. Uh, obviously, if you're going down the road of maintaining a property, then I would suggest to you that it, it's sensible to look at maintenance that is going to improve its energy efficiency rating. So I'll use myself for an example. I actually have an air source heat pump. I don't have an air source heat pump. Well, I, I am fairly keen on, on green stuff, but I didn't do it just because I wanted to be green. I had to replace my boiler. It was going to cost me quite a lot of money to buy a new gas boiler. It was also going to cost me quite a lot of money to buy an air source heat pump. But the reality is the two amounts of money were not that far apart, given the size of the installation I needed. And I was able to avail myself of the now defunct renewable heat incentive, which actually made it more more cost efficient to simply enjoy yeah, the electric heat pump. And obviously, it means that my gas bills have dropped dramatically, which um, leads me to be very smug of, of late. <laughs> um, so, so the reality is, I would say to people that 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 you that you need to accept that this is going to happen. Um, the timeline is now being stretched out, and probably will. I, I, I would have thought you're probably going to look at a 2028, you know, first phase introduction. Um, it's debatable whether it will go all the way to C. The government now might might do it in chunks and go to D and then C. But the reality is people do need to work on this. But I would try and do it within you know existing tax-deductible repair as opposed to jumping out there and making radical improvements. Um, uh, the other problem with all of this is that the government, as part of this consultation, has also suggested it might completely restructure the way that EPCs work. So domestic EPCs specifically are measured based on how much it's going to cost to heat and light a property for 12 months. Uh, One of the things that's always entertaining about this is the number that's generated is always guaranteed to be wrong. I've never seen an EPC number that was anything other than total fabrication. Um, But it also means that they can be uniquely sensitive um, to changes in energy cost. So, for example, there was a period about two years ago where oil prices really dropped. Um, and it was possible to go in, basically, if you had an oil-fired uh, heating system and you got, and, and because the, 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 it's, it's basically, sorry, let me go back. Um, heat cost is done on a three-month rolling average. So small fluctuations in prices don't matter. But there was a period about two years ago where oil prices dropped for a sustained period of about five months. Um, and if you went and got yourself an EPC, you'd almost certainly manage to have jumped your rating up a whole band simply because the, the, um, rolling average got beaten by the fact that oil prices stayed in a sustained low period. Equally, if you've got a gas-fired system and, of, and and you did an EPC four or five months ago, the chances are your EPC would be worse because gas prices were up and the three-month rolling average of, of gas prices reflects that. And of course, it will take time for it to roll back down again. So, so one of the problems with all this is, is that it's done on money. And then the other problem is, of course, it can be defeated by, by silly things. So, for example, you might have a really energy efficient house where the gas boiler is running all the time to keep it hot, but you've got a really great rating because your property is covered in solar panels and the system gives you a credit for generation of electricity. So you might actually have a house that is very energy inefficient, but has a really great EPC rating. Um, even though it's generating lots of carbon, which doesn't make a huge amount of sense. So there is another rating system called an ECC rating, which basically tries to measure how much carbon comes out of your property. 
Um, and and the government has intimated a complete change from EPCs to to ECCs. Now the problem with that is they haven't said whether they, they actually implied they would have both, but they haven't then said whether it's going to be an EPC or an ECC. Whether they then take the average of the two ratings, whether they take the lower rating or the higher rating, and um, and and how that's going to work. So there's also the problem that energy performance and carbon performance are not quite the same. And at the same time as all of this, there are ongoing tweaks being carried out, which have created changes in EPC ratings anyway, um, in terms of the way that the calculation methodology works. And they're always being changed. And, um, and on that point, um, David, Dan, uh, good morning, Dan, says, uh, I was speaking to an EPC assessor recently who advised their petition in the government to base the ratings off carbon produced rather than perceived efficiency, which I think is your point around ECC. Um, we've also got a, a comment from Move. Uh, I am. Good morning. Uh, I, I, I I don't believe you were christened that name. If you were, what an extraordinary name to have in this industry. Um, Gove reportedly made comments last week pushing back time frame on me's requirements for landlords. So there seems to be yeah, an awareness here that this is being pushed. quite an interesting one because he actually said something and nothing simultaneously. What he actually said was, was that we might have to turn down the pressure on landlords in this area. But then... There is also there was also a putative plan to force landlords to fit um, to, to not install gas boilers, and the briefing that went with it from his department said that he was referring to that. So, so yes, it's possible. But but I mean, the crazy thing is, of course, Go's announcement was a non-announcement because the Mies timeline had already been pushed back. There wasn't a Mies timeline, and and so so the, the, the silly thing about this is it's been over over registered as Go pushed back the Mies timeline. But the Mies timeline didn't exist in the first place. There was no time to push back. And, and you mentioned earlier about um, registering. Somebody who, who hasn't le- left their name, but good morning nonetheless, um, asked, could you confirm which website you mentioned we should be registered with, please? And I think this is pertinent to the EPC registra- registration point you made at the top of the, at the top of the slide. Oh, my Lord. Now you're, now you're asking the questions. I'm going to do some rapid Googling while we're, we're, we're talking. And, and while you're doing that, we've got a question from Keeley, which is around material information. I, I've seen the question, Keeley, and I'll definitely revisit that when we, when we get to that slide. Um, and also, whilst you're Googling that, it, it sounds like that, you know, through Gove's comments and, dare I say, if you're, if you're slightly cynical, um, you could see this as a give back to landlords in light of the thing we're not talking about today, uh, which is the Renters Reform Bill. Um, do you think there's any truth in that? Are they trying to balance the books here in terms of understanding how much pressure there's going on to landlords? And should this... Should we take this as a sign that the government is listening and understanding how difficult life is for landlords at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a, an aspect of that, but I also think that's complete, a complete, a complete silly approach, isn't it? I mean, to say, oh, you know, we'll screw you in one area, so we'll make it easier on you in another. I don't think it's actually resolving the resolving the issues associated with the. Um, um, with being a landlord i mean uh and 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 in practice if you do it in the right way many landlords i mean this is why for example the the the, the cameron sort of get rid of the green crap thing was such a terrible idea things like the green deal could have been quite an effective means of of improving energy efficiency and there are lots of things the government could do to make energy efficiency much more attractive to people for example it makes no sense at all in my mind that if my boiler is broken, I can replace it with an air source heat pump and get a tax a tax disc. I can get I can claim that as a as a repair and 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 get a tax deduction on it. But if I simply want to be energy efficient and replace my somewhat old 
horrible gas boiler with uh, with an air source heat pump, I can't. And what I need to do is persuade the tenant to go and beat on it a little bit and, and without blowing themselves <laughs> up. Um, so that it's broken. It, it, it makes it makes very little sense to my mind to have a system where where you have to wait till something's broken before you fix it. If you're actually telling people that they ought to make improvements to their property, there should be a wider um, operation around 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 what we mean by. Um, but, but but well I think I think improvements basically should be it should be classed as 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 legitimate tax deductible repairs in in specific circumstances. I suppose it, it comes down to, to how important the thing you're trying to achieve is. And I suppose there's there's mixed messages coming out of the government of how important this is. And and like you say, um whilst I, I think it's probably a fair point that there's some balancing going on, it does take away from both sides of that coin, how important either value is when you're when you're balancing them and playing politics with them. Um, because hey, life's a bit a bit difficult. I mean, if it's important, then we should find a route to achieving it as quickly as we can. But I mean, um, it's quite a it's quite an important part. And I think you know, for, for landlords, and we've had these sessions before with agents and landlords joining us. Um, they were materially worried about the cost implications of this um, at such a you know within a time frame that seemed so short. Um, but you know, taking your advice, David, here, if you're doing iterative um work and improvements then you know the timelines feel manageable if, if we're talking about sort of 2028 potentially and, and onwards yeah i mean it's crazy so the, the the address that people are looking for is the prs exemptions register which sits at prsregister.bays.gov.uk fantastic thank you very much um we'll um we'll, we'll move on um uh if we may um and um we'll look at um the the changes to material information because like as i said we, we've got a, a question in here from keely actually around this um but when it comes to um the uh, uh material information can you just walk us through david what what does material information include let's start at the top well this is one of the difficulties within with with nts elat's guidance material information includes anything that a reasonable person would wish to know before entering into an arrangement to buy or rent a property. So it, the difficulty with it, and the, and the thing that's always quite difficult for agents to deal with is it it could be anything. As long as it's something that's relevant that a reasonable person would wish to know, then it's material. Now, in practice, I, I tend to feel that, that people overrank this so for example i have lots of people saying to me oh it's material information to tell a tenant if the previous tenant died in the property i don't think that is material information unless the death in some way is is newsworthy so that the property might be tainted in the public mind but but you know if you're going to tell people that people have previously died in a property if it's not a new build then the chances are someone's always died in the property so so what are you going to tell them? Someone died in this house at some point in the dim and distant past or more recent past. I just don't think it's a hugely relevant point. Um, I know that some tenants feel differently. You get tenants who complain that that, that they, they would have liked to have known that the last person had died. But as a, as a lawyer, we don't believe in ghosts, I'm afraid. So um, I accept other people do, uh, but the law doesn't. So um so so the difficulty is it it depends on on each individual case what is material. The the thing that I'm much keener on most of the time is people shouldn't be misleading in the information they give. And I think the more common problem I tend to find is people being misleading. So, for example, excessively keen use of Photoshop um, 
highly deceptive use of photographs or angles of photographs to 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 obfuscate issues that are um that are likely to be relevant so for example uh, not so long ago i was looking to buy a house and one of the houses i ended up viewing had a 24 hour shop abutting it next door and all the photos had been taken so that that 24 hour shop wasn't visible um which te- which took some really tight cropping on particular sides but i would say that was material information and to take a picture that that chops out that there's a shop abutting your house i think is is misleading mm. obviously i had a personal investment in this one so i'm bound to think it was more misleading <laughs> but but um but i had i had a somewhat grumpy word with the agent after the viewing because we turned up to the viewing and said we're just not going to buy this house it's not going to happen um and um, we don't want, I mean, I'm not saying that people don't want a 24-hour shot next to them, but we don't. And um, it happens to be material. And uh, I said to the agent, I would never have attended this viewing if your um, pictures had, had been um, properly done. These are deceptive, and I just declined to go to any further viewings with that agent um, at all. So so it, it, it it's essentially open to interpretation, I suppose is your point. Um and, and, and this is why the whole material information guidance from NTSLAT, in my view, is a bit misconceived. And, and with that in mind, um, we, we, as I said, we had a question in at the top of the session, actually, from Keeley. Um, uh, during the launch of Part A for lettings, my understanding was, as a general thumb, anything financially affecting the tenant must be displayed. With this in mind, my interpretation was the tenancy length should be displayed as the tenant may be in a situation in 12 months' time where they need to secure a new abode, which should incur cost. I've logged on to the NTS site, and the Part A update of July 22 notes only rent, deposit, holding and security, and the council tax. Do you yeah. agree, David, that this should be rent, deposit, holding and security, and council tax only? No, and I don't think, and, and this is the problem with the whole NTS ELAT approach is, is, is the danger of what they're doing is you assume if you say those things, you've done everything. Um, so if, if a landlord has particular views about the type of tenancy they're prepared to offer that is, that is very specific or is different from the norm within the market, then yes, I agree that is material information. Um, and in practice, I think, if if your position to tenants is to offer particular tenancy lands, and th- then that potentially also is an advertising point that you may wish to engage in, as long as the information you give is accurate. Um, so I think that the difficulty with with um, with material information produced by NCSLT is precisely the point. Uh, was a Keeley, sorry, Keeley. Yes, re- raises is that you start to get to this dangerous position where people say, "Well, I only have to do the things." The NTS ELAT have said, and and, I, and if you read the NTS ELAT guidance closely, but whoever does, they do throw in a line that says, "Do bear in mind you have to do all material information anyway." These are just the things that we always say are material, but but the reality is, the things on the parte list aren't always material. If for because one of them is the council tax. If for example I run a business doing student lettings, I am letting only to full time students then the council tax rating for the property is irrelevant because students don't have to pay council tax. Um, if I'm going to advertise a property as uh, with a rent that's all in, so so as, as many HMOs are, and therefore the council tax is, in, is included in the rent, then I don't see that the council tax is material at all. Mm. So, so the difficulty is with these things, and this is where the part B and C point gets quite interesting. The, 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 they, they originally entity sort of gave some hints about what they saw coming in the further parts, parts B and C, 
which they've quietly done away with again because they were quite extreme and they they started to go down the road of you must tell tenants the proposed tenancy length and, and all kinds of things that actually were were potentially potentially variable um and wouldn't necessarily be material to the average individual so there was there was a real risk that you start to go too far and i think this is this is one of the problems with this is it is it especially as you as you tie portals into it and and then portals you know, not unreasonably structure their system. So if you don't give them a council tax figure, they just won't put your property up. There's a real danger that NTSLAT is, 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 and, and in fact, in my view, NTSLAT is basically trying to invent the law to make it what they want it to be. I mean, they, 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 they tried at one stage to get the government to amend the consumer protection from unfair trading regulations to expressly list the things in their guidance as being things that were material and the government declined to quite rightly, in my view. Um, so they've now produced this guidance, but but the reality is, it's a bit of a nonsense. Material information prosecutions are amazingly rare. Um, they're not normally reported, so it's very difficult to see what the case law is. But every single one I've seen has not been about whether or not you told the tenant what the council tax figure is. They are always about people who produce who who are who are basically a little bit dishonest, mm. um, either inadvertently. Or in many cases, just willfully. So, purpose, it, yeah. so yes, mad, mad Photoshop is, is usually <laughs> the number one situation <laughs> that leads to to threats of prosecution. And, uh, and with that in mind, what, what what should agents be doing then at the moment? What what what, what stance can they take that that puts them in a position of confidence? Well, I don't think that the party guidance is, is overly onerous. And obviously, I think that in practice, you're you're better off to comply with the NTSA LAT guidance. Um, but I think you should think about it openly. And what I try to encourage agents to do is think about it if you were looking to rent or buy a property. Every agent must, in at some point, have been in a position where they were a potential tenant or a potential purchaser. Would you be satisfied if you turned up to this property based on the advertising you had seen, would you consider it was a fair representation of the property? If not, then you should be thinking about it carefully. I frequently see situations where, for example, in a state agency, a property has had a negative survey um, and it's been clearly and it's and it's got a structural issue and it's not on the advertising. But all that happens is it goes to conveyancing, um, a survey's done, and the um the buyer pulls out or demands a massive price reduction. It goes back on the market. But the reality is you should, you need to advertise it and be clear that there is a negative survey and the pricing needs to be adjusted. You can't just hope that someone will buy it, um, ignoring, ignoring you know, the, the obvious evidence. Yeah. Um, but- equally, people get very upset about letting properties and, and landlords will say, oh, well, I don't want you to say that my property has a petrol station nearby or a 24-hour shop next door if that's the reality then then deceiving people about that is only going to lead to problems later and and also an absolute waste of everybody's time frankly if if, if it's that person and you know that's an issue you know from a just from a practice perspective it feels like a like a an avoidable um inefficiency um so sure. you know I mean, the, the problem at the moment of course is that in many sectors of the economy and, and many many parts of the lettings industry tenants are so desperate they, they'll just take property on on anything um and so agents are often in quite a difficult position i accept because landlords will often pressure them and say well i don't want you to advertise it and i'll go somewhere else mm. 
But you really do need to bear in mind that that prosecutions are rarely taken against landlords and vendors. They're almost always taken against the agents. And I should also point out that they're often taken personally against individuals. It is incredibly common in these prosecutions for an individual to be named where they can be identified um, as a co-defender alongside the company. And that can be very painful in yeah. an individual experience. Yeah, very much so. Um, just quickly going back to, to EPCs, we've got the question in from uh, the person who didn't leave their name. Um, and uh, it fears that actually their Zoom crashed the moment we we're answering the question. So just to confirm uh, to, to you, the, the website you're asking for uh, is prsregister.beers.gov.uk. Um, so that, that's where you need to be going to re- register um, EPCs. Um, okay, that, that's really interesting around material information. So, you know, I think having a um, a self check process there, if you know, does it pass that test? As you, you know, as you went through, um, is 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 probably the way to go. Um, there's not only changes to, to this, but also um, updates to um, how short lets are working. Um, and you know, when we caught up, David, you felt this one was uh, particularly pertinent and had wine raging um, effects across. Um, across the industry, uh, do you want to take us through what, what what's happening in the world of short let, uh, short term so, let? So as as many people may be surprised to discover, there are more than one, there's more than one bill before Parliament at a time. <laughs> They're talking about other stuff too, and one of the really important ones is the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill. Um, that is pretty much finished, um, and as soon as Parliament comes back to work in early September, it's going to be finished and going to charge off for all assent. And one of the key elements about it is a short let's register, which is a national register of every property that is made available um, to someone to occupy. Um, and, and the definition is to be occupied not as their home. So anyone who's choosing to occupy a property for a holiday or something like that, or is advertising for that basis will be required to join a short let register. Um, Wales is proposing to do its own thing on this. Obviously, when I say national, I mean England. Obviously, I'm not talking about Scotland or Ireland. Wales is going to do something similar using its own structure. But in England, there is going to be a short note register. Um, there is already a consultation underway as to what that register will look like. Um, and, um, and, and there's a consultation required as part of the legislation, but the legislation expressly says that a consultation can be carried out before the bill gets its royal assent and becomes a proper act of parliament. So the consultation is already happening right now about the short let register. And that is a, a more than a, a more than subtle indication, frankly, that the government intends to ram it through as quickly as they can. Um, bear in mind, from the Conservative Party's perspective, short let register is, is generally seen as a bit of a vote winner because it addresses issues in core seats that they want to keep in the West Country and through rural areas where they're under an enormous amount of pressure and where things like uh, holiday homes are seen are generally seen locally as a bit of an issue. Um, I appreciate for, for those of us who live, live in the Southeast, um, a holiday home somewhere else is seen as something we'd very much like to have. And the ability to go and stay in, I don't know, Dorset or Cornwall is seen as a mega good thing. But locally, these are not seen as positives. And um, these are these are seats that the Conservative Party absolutely must hold on to if it wants to if it wants to survive the next election in any in any meaningful form. Um, so this is local politics on a national stage. Uh, but the register is 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 far advanced, and I would be very surprised if the register is not launched next year and ready to go. Um, 
So at the moment, it's hard to, I can't give you any more details about what it will look like, but I would advise you to go look at the consultation um, and consider responding to it if you've got short letting as part of your business, um, because it, you're going to have to sign up to it. And I, I should point out that most European countries are on short note register. If you've ever rented, for example, in France, you will actually get a specially formatted email through giving you the um, agent's reference number on the French short letter register. And all of the major portals like Airbnb and, and other similar portals, other portals uh, are available, are all fully signed up to this and are actually quite supportive of it. Um, so it's 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 definitely going to happen. There's no no question that it's going to go, go through pretty quickly. So on that point then, David, the kind of the transition between um, uh, so longer term letting and short term letting that that sounds like that will become far harder to do and. And, and therefore present, um, you know, maybe challenges to so revenue streams. There is a, a second element to all of this, which is that there is a proposed new planning use class for short letting. So the proposal is to, and this can be done relatively quickly as well, the consultation on short letting has an associated consultation on a new planning use class for short letting. So if you want to change your property from its current um uh, C3 domestic residential and uh, 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 dwelling use, whether whether let or, or owner occupied, um, and want to short let it, you will need to apply for planning permission. If you don't do so prior to the short let uh, short let um, use class coming into effect, again, probably pretty likely to happen next year, frankly. Um, and um, and 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 the reality is, I would expect that almost all of those planning permissions will be refused. So, so, and, and of course, the short let register just really helps with the enforcement. And people think, oh, local authority enforcement is not that great. Local authority planning enforcement tends to be pretty effective mm. and pretty robust, not least because they can prosecute you and do horrible things to you and make you knock things down and other exciting stuff. Local authorities are quite aggressive in pursuing planning, um, planning prosecutions. And the short let register, of course, will make it very, very easy for them to do so. And of and, course, gives them gives them a double edged sword in the sense that they can prosecute you once for not being on the register, and a second time and they can, and and it will be quite easy because the chances are you're going to have to de- have to advertise your property with the registration number alongside it. Yeah, and, and, and Monica asks, um, "Good morning, Monica. Um, will short will the short let register include one off lets such as short term lets before the property is sold?" Yes, it will if be it, any. If it, if it, I mean, bear out. It's been called short, but. If it's a letting for if it's a letting for someone to use as their home, that's fine. If it's a letting not to be used as their home, then it will fall within the scope of the register. So this is going to affect a huge range of situations. So it's going to I mean one of the things that makes it really relevant to the bill that we're not supposed to be talking about is that one of the effects of the renters reform bill has been for landlords in some areas to start switching into short letting. Mm. This will make it quite difficult to do so because yeah. Because you will have to register on the short lets register. If the plan, if the planning use class has already happened, you will effectively be precluded from switching your property. So, so the reality is, much as I hate to say it, if you're seriously thinking about switching to short letting, you should do so now. Mm. Um, yeah, very much and so. Establish a usage as a short let property prior to the planning use classes being changed. The planning use classes are going to be pushed through before the renters reform bill precisely to stop landlords turning around and saying, oh, I don't like the renters' reform bill, I'm going to switch to short letting. So if you want to, if you want to go short let, then you should establish a usage of short let now, and even if you then drop out and go back into the mainstream market, 
you need to establish usage of short light in order to justify the, the planning change. And and two questions coming in from from people who haven't left their name, but um, once again, good morning nonetheless. Um, first up, um, would a short term let, uh, David, be deemed anything uh, as anything less than six months? No, it's done at the moment. The legislation classifies it based on use as not as not as my primary dwelling. Um, and uh, again, for sort of so, so a short let register is misleading. It's really a holiday let's register. Indeed, yeah. Um, and and do you think the short term register will be a precursor for a full landlord register? Uh, open bracket. Sorry, that's another Renters Reform Act reference. People are getting it, but we can't get away, of course, from the Renters Reform Act. <laughs> well, indeed, I mean, uh, and, and what they're now calling it, the National PRS database, is an element in the um, Renters Reform Bill, and yeah. And 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 sure, a short let register lets you um lets you have a bit of a, a trial run. And I suppose one of the things that would be quite interesting is is undoubtedly whichever entity ends up winning the tender for the short lets register is going to have a very a very free run at the national PRS database for sure, mm. whoever that entity is. No, definitely. Um, so um, in terms of short, short-term short lets, quite a lot of change there. And um, unlike most things we're speaking about where, you know, w- w- there isn't much confidence on timelines and if anything, timelines being pushed back, um, it certainly sounds, David, this is a timeline that you have more confidence on and actually something that agents really need to take note to be able to support landlords accordingly if they're, if they're working in this in this area of, of, of the industry. Um, the government's pushed ahead with its consultations. Um, before the legislation is even put for all assent, is generally, I wouldn't say it's an absolute, but it's a general indicator that it's something they're going to go with. And when you couple that up with with it being a local issue in seats that the Conservative Party wants to win before an election, um, it allows them to go on the doorstep and say, look what we have done about shortletting in your area. So it's, um, uh, this is one of the situations where, where, as you get close to an election, politics becomes becomes very localised because MPs need to be able to walk around their constituency and say to me, look what I've done for you. Make sure you vote for me so I can keep doing it. And so national politics becomes local politics. And that's why you get odd, odd situations like uh, like the arguably quite specific ULES position in Uxbridge being taken as a it turned into a national position that we won't do green stuff that's going to cost you money. And Michael Gove making comments that that are then taken as reading as as me's for landlords is dead. And and you know it might be, but this is where local politics really gets a run on the national stage. Mm, no, indeed. Um, and, and the noise will only get louder, uh, I imagine, as we as we approach the election uh, across different areas. Um, in terms of uh, questions, we've got one in from Clancy. This is actually back to the material information um, topic. Um, Clancy says, uh, with so many people now working from home at times, should broadband coverage be listed and made obvious to tenants in the same bracket as basic utilities? Uh, I recently lost my holding deposit, £350, uh, on a property that I later found to have exceptionally poor broadband speeds and therefore refused to sign the tenancy agreement. The entire process was a waste of time for all, especially a landlord who stopped advertising their property for two to three weeks. Any thoughts on that point, uh, David? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good question. I mean, I, I don't have an answer for you because material information is what's material to an average tenant. I think the courts would be reluctant to put broadband coverage in there. And, and I mean, I think you'd also got to bear in mind the courts will, will tend to also uh, have always historically tended to say, well, I won't make you do things that tenants could easily find out for themselves. 
because um, it's not terribly hard to type a postcode into a, into a broadband checker and get an indicator of broadband speed. But at the same time, I, 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 I moved. I moved house myself and discovered that um, my broadband options in in the, in the house where I reside now were limited to Virgin Media, Virgin Media, or possibly Virgin Media. <laughs> <laughs> and and I suppose from an agent perspective, they may argue that you know if they're, if they're advertising a portal, especially most portals actually right below the property, give you an indicator and allow you to go and find this information for yourself quite readily. So it's it's it, I don't think it takes away from how pertinent the point is. Um, and it's, but it's a great point, and and actually is why material information is such a challenge because what's material is hugely and and this is why it's so difficult for NTSLT to and trade hunts pursue prosecutions what is material is just so dependent on who you are mm. um i would i completely agree in the sense that obviously poor broadband speed is a big deal for for myself and for lots of people who who need to work at home and carry out video meetings it really matters um so much so that you can see entire adverts about it um but at the same time, there are groups of people that it's completely irrelevant to. And some people will probably be delighted if their broadband was terrible to get their kids off the computer games. Um, so um, it's um, it's a really good question. But it also shows how it changes over time. You know, 10 years ago, this is there was, that would be a non-point. Um, today, it's a very much a point. And as things, for example, like Sky move off satellite dishes onto broadband provision, um, a decent broadband speed is is fundamental. For example, if you want a substantive television service, so the, these kind of issues are are just just really difficult, and really challenging. Mm, and indeed. at some level, I I don't. While I'm not happy with what NTXLT has done, I think it's useful that they provoke the debate. Um, I'm conscious of time. With 30 minutes left, I want to try and sort of go through the next couple of slides. We've got one that I think is potentially quite um, uh, important. So let, let's touch on, if we if we may, David, um, the upcoming review to tenant consumer rights. Um, can you talk us through what, what what this is all about and and, and <laughs> how this will um, uh, affect tenants, uh, agents alike? Right. Well, I mean, the short answer is it's probably a bit of a flash on the pan, but the Consumer and Markets Agency, the CMA, has a general uh, regulatory view in relation to competition and consumer rights, um, separate from NTS, CLAT, and the Trading Standards Services. Um, it has said that it is going that it has been it, that it is has it's it's noted that tenants obviously are facing enormous financial pressure, and I'm sure I. I'm not saying anything terribly surprising when I point out that rents are very high, especially as percentage of um, of take home earnings. Um, the CMA has simply said it's going to carry out a review uh, in order to um, determine whether um, whether it can use any of its competition powers to assist tenants, or whether it should use its competition powers to assist tenants. This got reported quite breathlessly in lots of places, and, and I and I get that it's quite concerning. I have to say, having had a meeting with the CMA, um, I came away a bit less interested and also a bit nonplussed in that it was patently obvious that the CMA had no particular view about what that review could be. And also wasn't particularly clear about which of its rights it could be using. And as, as Ollie and I were talking about in the prep for this, there's an argument, although it's not, not a very, not a very sort of palatable argument that the very high rents are a very clear example of the market working as it should. There is inordinate amounts of demand for relatively scarce rental properties. Ergo, rents are high. I don't think that's um, 
an enormous surprise um, that um, that rents are high, and I don't think that that's an example of of a, of a consumer or competition law failure. Um, it's unfortunate for sure, but um, I don't think it's a place that the CMA has any any jurisdiction to go. And I suspect the reality is that their review will quietly fade away as they realise they don't have any significant powers that they should be exercising in this area. But I think yeah. it. Go on, sir. I was going to say, in terms of your point around the free market, it's um, it, it kind of like you say, working in my view as it should, uh, whether we like that or not. And I think most people you know, don't. And, I, and I, I'm definitely on that side. It, it feels grossly unfair, actually, in places at the moment. Um, and it's actually mostly not people's fault either. You know, there's a lack of support and and foresight. Um, it's hard to really see where the CMA can play a role here, surely, because um, the link between rent is is directly 99% of the time down to that market, right? It, it, like you say, this feels like potentially a non-starter. I mean, to be fair, when I met with CMA, I was doing so on behalf of, of clients on a lobbying basis, and, and and we very much saw it as a as 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 going in and getting, trying to get the CMA to hold the government's feet to the fire and say the problem here is you need to build some houses. It, indeed, yeah. yeah. If you, um, you really want to resolve problems with housing, you've got to review the planning system. Um I suppose I'll betray a political view here in that in that I think you've got to really consider whether Greenbelt is is right or wrong. I live in Surrey. It's easy to build a golf course here. Mm. And I live within walking distance of six of the damn things than it is to build houses. I just don't see I mean obviously I'll admit I'm not a big fan of golf. So so you can I, I got that impression. Up, <laughs> yeah, you can take my views up on that basis, but but it just doesn't make any sense to me that I can build a golf course. Um, easier than I can build housing. I just don't think that makes a great deal of sense. No, no, indeed. And and to use a golf analogy, um, let's let's look at the courts because at the moment they're performing over par, um, and um, uh, the round isn't looking that good. Um, there's a lot going on from a court process perspective, isn't it, David? And there's a lot of pressure still on the courts. For it, you know, it feels to me that we haven't really ever got over the the, the COVID effect, um, and adding more legislative change on top of that, personally think brings only further pressure can you just talk us through what the pressures are at the moment and what we're seeing in the courts obviously we had the position during covid that that in effect courts were closed there was a ban on evictions uh, of all types whether it was whether it was at at the end stage with a bailiff or in the mid stages with 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 um possession claims um at the end of covid things started to tick up but actually there was quite a long period where things were quite flat and a lot of that was to do with the fact that social landlords were not pursuing eviction very much. That has now changed. Um, the last few quarters have seen seen some of the largest numbers of landlord eviction claims being lodged um, that we've ever seen. We're back to pre-COVID levels and rapidly extending beyond pre-COVID levels. But at the same time, the court service has has problems that it's never seen before in terms of shortage of judges. Um, so increasingly a judicial career is not attractive to my fellow solicitors and indeed myself and to members of the bar, which might seem surprising when I tell you that a, a full-time district judge is starting is about a hundred thousand pounds. So it's not, this is not, this is not, it's not like we're not paying them decent money here. Mm. It's not bad. Um, but the, but the, um, the career option is, is unenticing. Uh, the most recent district judge competition fell woefully short in finding the appropriate number of district judges. They wanted about 300. They got somewhere around a third of that. 
um, the circuit judge competition, so slightly more senior judges, again, well-paid judges. You know, this is about 130 to 140,000 pounds per annum full time. Uh, the circuit judge competition failed to find uh, the 90 circuit judges it was looking for. Again, about a third of the sufficient number. Um, so there are real difficulties in attracting people of sufficient quality into the judiciary. I mean, I, I suppose I'll be honest and say some of that is because you can actually get, if you're good enough to become a, a top-end judge, you're going to get paid significantly more money, I'm afraid, in private practice. Mm. So... Um, there is a real difficulty attracting people into judiciary. Um, the work environment is not attractive to many people. The quality of the courts are, are pretty poor. They're in um, and many of them are in a very poor state. Um, there are real shortages with administration staff. So often, although there's a shortage of judges, you still find situations where judges are sitting around unable to do work because there is insufficient um, uh, cases prepared to put forth before them. Um, and this is all leading to knock-ons. So at the moment, it will take at least minimum four to six months to get a possession claim heard. Um, and I've had longer. I've got at least one case where it's taken so long for the court to even issue the claim that the Section 21, with its six-month use-it-or-lose-it provision, has gone out of time. Mm. Um, and we're going to end up appealing the whole thing, and we've made a complaint. Um, and also our complaints aren't getting responded to either because the complaint service is so overloaded. I've had another case where in, in East, in, in, in the Essex Kent area, um, I'm deliberately being obscure about exactly where it is, um, <laughs> where, um, the hearing has been cancelled three times because of, because the judge, because there's only one judge he's allocated into that court for hearings and he's been apparently ill and there is no other judge who apparently can take over these cases. Um, so I've had a, and that's a mortgage repossession where the person just hasn't paid their mortgage and has continued to just not pay and, and now owes over a million pounds in, uh, when you take into account all the interest and everything else. So it's, mm -hmm. you know, really ridiculous situations occurring with these things. And um, on, on that, on the point in terms of the length and, and, and the importance of this, I think we're, we're seeing as a business more landlords and agents switched on to, um, onto the risk that's faced here. So we are seeing more and more questions around, for example, our rent protection product, which normally David sits around, you know, arrears, arrears, arrears. Actually, they're recognizing that the arrears is part of the problem, but the other part of the problem here is actually getting anything through the courts and therefore legal expense protection, um, and support becomes, you know, more valuable today than it once was. Um, that support though, um, is, is two tone because whilst we support letting agents and landlords through that process, um, there has been announcements around, um, help us. Um, that will help support tenants, hasn't there, in recent times? Can you talk us through what that's suggesting? Yeah, so so previously there was something called the Legal Aid Duty Scheme, which basically meant that in most, but by no means all courts, there was a duty service solicitor um, who, who would basically talk to people who were coming in. If they were there for housing matters, would give them five or ten minutes of advice prior to the hearing in order to try and keep them their property. Now, the problem with that is, in most cases, tenants don't attend court. Uh, two, by the time they get to court, it's probably a bit late anyway. Um, and of course, from a landlord's perspective, their attitude's probably hardened by this point. They're not really up for negotiation and they get incredibly annoyed as well when last minute defenses are thrown in that, that should perhaps have been put in earlier. Um, so the objective of the housing loss prevention advice service or help us, um, is to, um, is to try and get that advice in much earlier. And to have it available at an earlier stage rather than just in court. 
whether it will change anything comes down to one whether it's sufficiently funded it has got a bit more money thrown at it but not a lot and of course whether tenants can access it so on the entertaining events the last couple of weeks was that the government intimated it had changed section 8 and 21 notices in order to put hlpas uh, into the tenants notes but then it transpired they hadn't altered section 8 and 21 notices what they've altered is the guidance notes for tenants um, that sit alongside Section 8 and 21 notices, but no one's obliged to give those tenants guidance notes. You don't, you're not required to serve them with the notice. Um, so they're generally not served. Tenants, unsurprisingly, when they get a Section 8 notice, don't go tootling off to look at the government website on Section 8 and read the guidance notes for tenants. Um, so there is some question as to whether or not the Housing Loss Prevention Advice Service will even be notified tenants, whether they'll be aware of it. Or whether they won't just become aware of it at court if they elect to turn up, as is already the case. So there is some concern as to whether it will actually make a huge amount of difference at all. Um, but I mean, the, the point I would always make, and I do make to landlords all the time, is wherever possible, it's better to negotiate. Um, I often have I find myself agreeing situations where, for example, landlords will just say, "Look, I'll write off the arrears if you leave now." Mm. And I, I mean, it's always been my advice, but I would, I would always say it's, it's even, it's even more the case now because you're going to wait ages and ages to get a possession order that by the time you get it will be so much money. The hope, the, the possibility of the tenant actually paying you is almost non-existent. Yeah. Um, I'll pay you any meaningful sum and you're just so much better off to try and get them to go early. I mean, there are challenges with that because of course you still have the problem and it's an ongoing problem of, of local authorities either overtly or or covertly or implicitly implying that tenants should stay in place. Um, but more and more tenants are starting to appreciate that the local authority is not going to rehouse them at all. Mm. Um, and so um, there does appear to be a, a bit more take-up from tenants of, of of the local to write it off, if you please leave, option. And it would be remiss again for me to not not suggest that there are there are rent protection insurance products out there that can help support agents and landlords with this. Um, you know, uh, clearly, good lord, have one. There are others in the market, um, and you know, ultimately, having that peace of mind maybe is more important because of how the facts are changing and the processes are changing. In your view, David, moving forwards, what you know, crystal ball time, um, and we'll, we'll finish on this note. To appreciate we are, we are we are rapidly out of time. Um, in your view, what? What does the pressure on the court system look like over the next eighteen to twenty-four months? Do you see? Do you think we see any material change? Because it doesn't sound like there's huge investment here to turn this old tanker around. Do you think it only gets worse? What's your it's, view? It's acute and it's getting worse. So there's been a fairly widely publicised issue with bailiffs running out of PPE. Uh, so bailiffs yeah. don't have, uh, run out of stab vests, so they're not able to to um, to take on more bailiffs, which is leading to, to cancellation or delays on on bailiff warrants being executed. I am told that that problem has been resolved. I don't know whether it has been. So things might improve a bit there. But the reality is that the Ministry of Justice has had significant cuts made to its services um, I don't, and, and to its funding and is likely to see a further set of cuts as we come through November. The, the, the Treasury has already made clear that that, that pay for public sector workers um, and, you know, being no doubt court service staff were striking as well for pay increases will have to come from internal budgets. So um, I, I'm not convinced that funding will appear. The government has said it's got it's got all this stuff about digital courts and, and more mm. digital models, but they've essentially spent the entire budget on the on the criminal stuff. So so there is no money. 
at the moment for the digital core plans and the people who are driving it forward are, are all are all gone so i don't actually see any prospects for significant improvement as we go forward and one thing that's really interesting is in in letters recently to organizations i operate for the housing minister has intimated that they won't push forward with the renters reformable implementation until the court service is up and running and operating effectively which was a bit of a, a wow. surprise as a commitment mm. but of course the difficulty in part is that is that they're not really telling the truth about it if you talk to ministry of justice court staff they'll tell you that there's a 60-day backlog for opening the post mm. but um the ministry of justice doesn't recognize that exists what they base all their stats on the assumption that the post is opened immediately and things are dealt with they don't appear to know about the fact that they're just not opening the letters. And and of course, you know, I, I made a point earlier, this is in today's world without layering in legislative change. And depending on your point there, David, of which comes first, um, it could be quite quite damaging actually if it's the wrong way around and it's not it, the system isn't fully prepared to, to take on the burden of of further of further work that's required as part of legislative change. So it's it's going to be a watch this space uh, thing, but clearly, from your point of view, David, things are, are probably going to get worse before they get better. By the sounds of it, um, yeah, which is something a spreading problem. Um, mm. The tribunal service is, is also increasingly overloaded. One of the things that Renters Reform Bill does is, is essentially force more. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> um, but essentially force more um, uh, rent increases down the section thirteen exactly. route, like yeah. more tribunal uh, claims over over rent increases and the tribunal is already taking nearly six months to process rent increases which which i mean that that process to me is just needs absolute clarity because you you've got a landlord there not knowing really what rent they're meant to receiving it's sat with the tribunal that's going to sit on their hands because of the volume there isn't financial investment and and why wouldn't people challenge it there's absolutely no reason why you wouldn't challenge that to test the waters um when you're it's rent control to my mind and it's it's effectively rent control by delay yeah um okay well we we do have to finish there we, we've run over time um to to the person who's just uh, uh commented and not left the name this has been really really useful thank you david nolly are we able to get a recording for team members that couldn't be online today please yes indeed we'll share a recording with you what a nice note to finish on thank you for that comment and david thank you um very very insightful um hour of time there to, to understand a bit more about some of the challenges the industry are facing hopefully detached enough away from the rent reform bill but do not worry uh, we will be back shortly uh with the next installment of this webinar um series around more rent rent reform bill um uh, detail along with a host of other things but for today david thank you and to everybody joining thank you very much for your time thank you cheers now bye-bye <laughs>